Good morning. I will be reading today from Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 1 through 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time, while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city, and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps and against the sword. While they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans, and to fill them with the corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath, and I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Thus says the Lord, yet again there will be heard in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man and without beast. That is, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, There will again be in this place which is a waste, without man or beast, and in all its cities, a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah. The flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And in this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying, 
the two families which the Lord chose, has he rejected them? Thus they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not in the fixed patterns of heaven and earth, I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. Dear Lord, I thank you for this passage, Lord. I thank you that you show your steadfastness, Lord, even when your people have been rebellious, Lord. This is, this is the state of our hearts, Lord. We are a rebellious people, Lord, but we are brought near by you. It's your arm stretched forth to save that does it all, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I pray that you would uh, cause us to see that this morning. Give us attentive hearts, Lord, and uh, make us mindful to remember these things throughout the week. Lord, that they would be a blessing to the church, Lord, and to the lost. In your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. I'm going to start again with a question, and that is, how are you supposed to be faithful and joyful as a child of God when everything around you appears to be falling apart? We know that uh, the... The essential answer is that we need to walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. But what is the content of that faith? What is it that specifically that we are to hang on to and to believe and to count as true when we're dealing with the grievously painful things that touch our lives day by day, week by week, year by year? Especially when our own senses our own perceptions, even our own logic, our own reasonable assessment of what we see going on around us and in our lives says that it is not well with us. Jeremiah needed to know the answer to that same question. There are two threads in this passage in Jeremiah 33 that are woven throughout the passage and they're woven throughout the book of Jeremiah. The first is the imminent, evident reality, and that's judgment. The second is the eventual and unsearchable reality, and that's the promise of glorious restoration. Now, I'll explain that word unsearchable as we proceed. In chapter 33, verses 1 through 13, God declares great and mighty things while the walls of the city are coming down. That's the imminent and evident reality that Jeremiah uh, was very acquainted with at this point and that the people in the city were certainly acquainted with. In verse 1, God says, Then the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard. This was mentioned in the previous chapter, at the beginning of chapter 32, that Zedekiah had thrown Jeremiah in the guardhouse in in the, the king's palace because Jeremiah was prophesying things that Zedekiah didn't like. For instance, the fact that Zedekiah himself was going to be taken into captivity and that he would meet Nebuchadnezzar face to face and eye to eye. The Chaldean army (laughs) was in the process of tearing down the walls of Jerusalem, the great fortified city of David. 
According to the, to verses four and five, houses within the city, including the king's houses, were being torn down to fortify the inside of the walls because the outside was coming down. They were trying to make the walls thicker from the inside. God says in those verses that anyone who attempted, anyone in Jerusalem who attempted to stand up against the Babylonian, the Chaldean army would do nothing more than add corpses to the body count. And God declared that those corpses that were dying in battle and the corpses that were dying of starvation and pestilence and, and all manner of, of struggle going on within the city, God said, those bodies are on me. He said that they're coming to fight with the Chaldeans and they're gonna fill, they're gonna fill the city with corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and my wrath and I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. But that is part of a sentence. And God is saying, God is setting the stage for the rest of the sentence and the rest of the sentence is about Restoration, it's about deliverance. There's been a whole lot of talk about judgment in this book. This is this passage is about the promise of deliverance. And that's where the unsearchable part comes in. The imminent, by the way, imminent means it's going to happen soon. The imminent reality was the judgment that was already in process. The, the eventual unsearchable reality is all of the rest of this chapter. Jeremiah 32, verses 2 and 3, God says, Thus says Yahweh who made the earth, who formed it to establish it. Yahweh is His name. Call to Me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. The last part of that's really important which you do not know. The word mighty in that verse essentially means inaccessible. And most of the times that that word occurs in the Old Testament, including Jeremiah, it, it's translated with the word fortified. And it, it refers to the, the cities like Jerusalem and Lachish that were fortified, that were heavily defended and protected. 20 of the 26 uses of that word are about fortified cities and the fortifications of those cities. <laughs> but there's another meaning of the word, and that is unsearchable. In other words, a city can be inaccessible to an enemy because its walls are strong. The truth can be inaccessible to people because God has hidden it in himself. And it can only be known if he reveals it. This word refers to, to both. If you look at the context in the first few verses and the context throughout the rest of the chapter, when God says great and mighty things, He's talking about things that are powerfully fortified and things that are powerfully hidden. Starting at verse 6, God finishes the sentence that He started in verse 4 and 5. And he declares great and mighty things while the walls are coming down. He's going to bring the city that he's presently judging 
to health and healing, he says in verse 6. He will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. Now, if you're in the city at this point, that's not the way it's looking to you. And then he says in verse 8, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. Their enemy was not Nebuchadnezzar. The one who was tearing that city down was not the Babylonian army. But they were instruments. It was God who was tearing down the walls of Jerusalem. And the only way that that, that problem, that that siege of God against His own people was going to be solved is if God took care of their sin problem. And that's what He's promising here to do. And he says it, the city will be to me a name of joy, praise and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Think about what that means. God is saying all the nations will fear me because of the good that I do for my wayward, sinful people. And then he says, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, all these things that he said went away earlier in the book. The voice of those who say, give thanks to Yahweh of hosts for He is good for His loving kindness is everlasting. That voice will ascend from the midst of the very city that was about to fall. God said it was going to fall. God said the city was going to be destroyed and the temple was going to be destroyed and the king was going to be carried away along with the people. God says, the voice of joy will ascend from this city. God declares great and unsearchable things. Things that really didn't make any sense from the perspective of the evidence that that Jeremiah or the people in the city could see at that point. They didn't make any sense. And yet God is saying, this is what's going to happen. In verses 14 to 18, God begins talking about the one who will make these things happen. He will make these great and mighty things happen. And he's talking here about the great and mighty King and Savior. He calls him the righteous branch of David. I'm going to show you uh, first Jeremiah 23 and then Jeremiah 33. It's 23 verses 5 and 6, 33 verses 14 to 17. And look at the common elements in these two. I've adjusted the translation just a little bit simply so that you can see in English the parts of these passages that match up in, in Hebrew in the, in the original. So they're worded the same in the two. Behold, chapter 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. Remember the branch part and the David part. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness on the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Chapter 33, the passage we're in, verses 14 to 17. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David 
to spring forth, and He will do justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell securely. And this is the name by which she, the city, shall be called. Yahweh, our righteousness. Not Yahweh made us righteous, but Yahweh, our righteousness. And then he says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. You know who the last king in the line of David in the Old Testament is? Until you get to Jesus, who was New Testament. Zedekiah. The king that has Jeremiah locked in the guardhouse of his palace. He's the last. Okay, And God says, David will perpetually or forever not lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Notice he doesn't say the house of Judah. There's a lot of interesting things going on here. Now, I want to point out that the next verse, verse 18, says something that many don't expect. It says that the Levitical priests will never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. Once Jesus came... There's no need for any more sacrifices. The sacrifices pointed to Christ. There is no longer an offering for sin. There's just one. Because the other ones were imperfect pictures of the perfect one. Right? So how is it that the Levitical priests will will not lack a man to stand before God to offer burnt offerings, burnt grain offerings, and sacrifices? Well, I'm not going to go into any detail on that. Uh, there are different views. I will say that the, that the one thing that pretty much everybody agrees with is that both the kingship of Christ and the priesthood of Christ are different than and better than what came before. But I'll also just add this to, to get you thinking. The New Testament makes a very big deal out of the fact that Jesus is descended from David. It also makes a very big deal out of the fact that Jesus is not a Levite and that his priesthood is not the Levitical priesthood. It's a different one, priesthood of Melchizedek. So you can ponder that. If you want to talk about it more, I'll be happy to talk with you offline. But I don't want to distract from the real point. And the real point, beloved, is Jesus, the righteous branch of David. The same person that this that these verses are talking about is the theme. He is the focus of the entire Bible from cover to cover. The branch of David means that he is descended from David. The declaration here is that he will reign as king on David's throne in Zion, in Jerusalem. He will do justice and righteousness. He will save Judah and Israel. He will be called Yahweh our righteousness and the city will bear His name. Yahweh our righteousness. Now, I said that same person is the focus of the entire Bible, this branch of David, this righteous branch of David. I'm I'm going to give you a little of the evidence for that. And I'm going to move quickly through quite a few passages. If you're a note taker, Just write down the the addresses. Don't try to write down a bunch about the content. And just listen. Just follow. And 
I'll put it up here also so you can see it. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. First verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Isn't that great? You got, you got root, shoot, branch, stem, fruit in one verse. The whole plant. And as I read this, notice that the spirit that this promised coming root and shoot will possess is described seven ways. Seven ways. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Verse 5, righteousness, there's that word again, will be about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. Verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. That always refers to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of, of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. You ready for that? I'm looking forward to that. The earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations, the Gentile nations, will resort to the root of Jesse. You know who Jesse is? That's David's dad. King David's father. Who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. His resting place is Jerusalem. Yes, the city of David. I'm going to go to Zechariah. After Isaiah's days, after Jeremiah's days, after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon that both of those prophets declared would occur of Judah's captivity, some of the Judahites returned to Jerusalem from Babylon by the decree of the Persian king Cyrus. And there was a temporary restoration in the land. And at that time, there was a high priest in Jerusalem as the as the temple's being rebuilt, there's a high priest in Jerusalem and his name is Joshua. And here's what Zechariah, hears God saying to Joshua. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. They're pointing to something else. And here's what they're going to point to. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on that stone, declares Yahweh of hosts, quote, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That's a lot. In, the, in a version. I'm not going to parse it all out, but I just want you to see those pieces and then let's move on. Isaiah chapter 28 talks about a stone. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in that stone will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level, then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. First Peter 2 says that that stone that Isaiah was talking about is Jesus. The cornerstone. A few chapters later in Zechariah, 
Zechariah the prophet is told by God to put a crown on the head of this guy Joshua, this high priest. God says, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, this guy who's the symbol of the branch that's coming. And then he says, thus, then say to him, thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold a man whose name is Branch. There it is again. For he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two, between the two offices of priest and king. You have a priest, this branch, who's going to be crowned and he's going to rule on a king's throne. Isaiah 52, verse 3. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So he's talking about a ruler, an exalted ruler, called that God calls my servant. And then here's the shoot and root terminology comes up again. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Except this this ruler, this exalted ruler, it, it then says he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And it goes on to say, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves considered him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. You remember the hymn, stricken, smitten and afflicted? It comes from that verse. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Now, we got this branch, this, this ruler, this root, this shoot, this stem of David. And he's called my servant. God calls him my servant in various passages. And he's, he's high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But he's also brought exceedingly low. And he bears the sin of his people. Through Jeremiah, God said this righteous branch of David was gonna, that, that God's gonna bring about the forgiveness of his people. In Zechariah, God talks about this branch and then he says, I will, I will do away with the sin of my people in a single day. You see the pieces here coming together? I, I know that's a lot of stuff. I said it was gonna be. I, I, I want you to see that this theme of the branch, the root, the shoot, the stem of David, it's just, it goes all over the place in the Old Testament. And then Romans, New Testament, Paul says, he's pointing back to Isaiah 11, and he says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So this ruler in both Testaments is not just going to rule over Israel and Judah, he's going to rule over the whole world. And the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And this is all about a person. 
All of these promises are about a person. And it's the same person, guys, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And when I say to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, the last book of the Bible, verses 5 through 7, you have this scene where John the Apostle is watching this heavenly scene and he sees, he sees God seated on his throne and he's holding this book with seven seals and, and John is crying, he's weeping because no one can be found who is worthy to open the book. And, and then it says, one of the elders says to John, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. And get this, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Have we seen some of that language before? The number seven, beloved, is the number of God. It's, It's the number of divine perfection. Horns were rulers or authorities. This great ruler, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, possesses a perfection of authority. A perfection of dominion. Eyes are used to see. And the Lamb of God possesses perfect sight. And the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. And if you look back in Isaiah chapter 11 at the, at the, the sevenfold description of the spirit that Messiah possesses, you'll see why he sees so well. These themes, beloved, are tied together from beginning to end and they're all about a person. And that person is Jesus. And He came and He took the the scroll out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And then, I said from the beginning of the Bible to the end, Revelation chapter 22, the last page of your Bible. Even if you got big print, this is on the last page of your Bible. I... Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the seed of David, the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. God declares great and mighty things while the walls are coming down. He he declares the truth about the great and mighty Savior, the righteous branch of David, when everything looks like it's falling apart. And then He tells us how mighty these things are. How many times in the history of mortal human beings has a person changed the timing of the sunrise or the sunset? How many times has a human being made an adjustment to the position of the sun or the moon or a star? Is there a person someone on earth, somewhere on earth who can tell you the exact number of the stars in the heavens? Or the exact number of grains of sand in all the oceans and seas on, and all the shores on earth? Well, someone would have to do all of that 
in order to stop these great and mighty promises of God from coming to pass. That's what God says right here. These precious and magnificent promises are so mighty in strength that no man can change them in even the slightest way. And they are so powerfully unsearchable. They are so entirely of God and not of man that no man can know them, beloved, unless God makes them known. No man can know these things unless God makes them known. And that's the segue to to my next and last point. And I'm going to call this Epistemology 101. Epistemology is a big word that means something simple. It means the study of how we know what we know. How is it that you and I come to know great and mighty things? How much of all the stuff that we just saw as we walked through the Bible passage after passage and saw all this about this righteous branch of David, how much of that would you have figured out if God had not sent prophets and apostles and angels and His Son and His Spirit to reveal these great and mighty things to His people? How much would you have figured out? None of it! Not one letter of it. Of all the things that were true in Jeremiah's day, what did Jeremiah most need to know? These things. That's what he needed to know. What did the Judahites most need to know? These things. What do you most need to know? These things. Things that cannot possibly be known unless God makes them known. Beloved, Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 2 and 3 changes everything. I'm going to black that out. How do we come to know the great and mighty things that explain to us why all the fearsome looking things going on around us aren't worthy to be feared? How do we come to know the great and mighty things that tell us why our well-being is not even touched by any of that? How do we come to know the great and mighty things that that so utterly transcend the short-sighted, hopeless, fruitless things of this world? Just one way. God has to tell us. We call to God to tell us what we can never come to know on our own. What we can never know apart from Him. And then we have to hear and believe what He tells us. And in order to do that, beloved, we have to confess that we don't know. See, the starting point of the knowledge of God is the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord starts when we humble ourselves before God and recognize the difference between Him and us. His ways are not our ways, beloved. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far separated are His ways from our ways. It's amazing. A lot of people know that pat, that, that little snippet from Isaiah 55. If you go just a few verses later, it says, His word that goes forth from His mouth does not return to Him void without accomplishing the purpose for which He sent it. His ways are not our ways, and so He has spoken, so we'll know what's true. 
And His Word accomplishes what it intends. Jeremiah 17.9 says, no, let me just say this before I get to that. We have to confess that He has to tell us what's true. We are called to believe God's Word more than we believe our own eyes, our own perceptions, and our own logic if that logic is divorced from revelation. See, human logic divorced from God's revelation is a free-for-all. God has chosen the foolish things of this earth to confound the wise. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, you know what that means, guys? That means that we who belong to Christ have some stunning news for this world. And that is that if you follow your heart, you get a big fat F in Epistemology 101. Not an F, a zero. Because apart from God speaking to us, we know nothing that will survive when this cursed earth is burned up. Not one single thing that will last one single second after God does away with sin and the curse and everything that is under the curse. See, the great and mighty things that we must most know are things which, as the Apostle Paul said, eye has not seen and ear has not heard and have not entered the heart of man. So if men are supposed to figure out what's true, where do they end up? They end up not knowing what's true. At all. You have evidence of that out there? 1 Corinthians 2.9 is what I was just citing. Very next verse, by the way, and this is beautiful. Okay, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and have not entered the heart of man. You know what the very next verse says? For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. How do you come to know unsearchable things? You listen to God. Beloved, God has a very forceful answer for progressive Christianity. Let me say that again. God has a very forceful answer for progressive Christianity. And that is for Christians to fall on our knees before Him and humbly confess that we know absolutely nothing of eternal significance unless He tells us. And God doesn't change. God says, don't move the ancient boundary. God says, I am the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. So when Christians adjust the theology of the church to fit in with the times, what they are doing is lying to you. The exact same cure, call out to God and listen when He tells you what's true. That exact cure applies to the grievous epidemic of hopelessness, powerlessness, and uselessness that that pervades the lives, the experience of many Christians. Beloved, if the eyes of your heart are fixed on things that you can know apart from God's Word, then they will never be fixed on what you cannot know apart from God's Word. And that's what you must most know. 
We have to stop fixing our hope on things that we can see and touch and lay hold of here and now because hope that is seen is not hope. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. Why do you hope for what you see? If, if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. That's the Christian life, guys. Eagerly waiting for what is coming, for what God has promised. And much more to the point, we must fix our hope on the One in whom all of those promises will find their perfect fulfillment. The righteous branch of David, the Savior King who is coming to, again to bring about all of the great and mighty things that God has made known. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to end with in this, this passage. Verses 3 through 13. Listen and, and consider how this fits with everything that we've been looking at. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Does that sound like your best life is now? No. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's talking about looking forward and upward and finding your hope there. And then he says, in this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by manifold trials. Anybody here know what that's like? Yeah. So how do you greatly rejoice in manifold trials? By fixing your hope on what's coming, not on what's here. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though that faith is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him with your physical eyes, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Guys, that's what God intends to be the Christian life. That's what God intends to be normal Christianity. To rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory because our eyes are in the right place. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, and this is beautiful, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, therefore, gird your minds for action, beloved. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely, completely, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
How do you live the Christian life joyfully? You call out to God and you listen to what He tells you. You hear the great and mighty things that He has promised to you in Jesus Christ and you hang on to those and you fix your eyes so steadfastly on those that the things that are going on around you here don't matter. They can't threaten that fortress. They cannot touch the strength of those promises. I'm out of time, but but guys, this... This is what the Christian life is all about. Call to me and I will tell you great and mighty things that you do not know. So that you'll know them. And you'll live them. And you'll be useful. God has given us absolutely everything that we need for life and godliness. He's given us absolutely everything that we need to be adequate, equipped for every good work. And He's given us everything that we need to rejoice daily with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's what the church is supposed to be like. What you and I need every single day more than anything else is to humble ourselves and to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen to Him because He has already spoken. He has already spoken. You guys have eight versions of what He has said on your phone. And Christians walk around acting like they don't know how to live life. Are we listening, beloved? I'll say the last part one more time. What we need, what you and I need more than anything else is to humble ourselves and to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen to Him and to receive what He says and to count it as true and trust Him. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live how? By trusting the One who loved me, the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Let's listen, beloved. Let's listen and be transformed. Dear Father, burn these things into our hearts. They are so marvelously simple and so marvelously transforming. May we stop living as if they are not. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.